Rugby wrap-up brought to you in part by Afia Sports Training Group, The Balanced Palette, The Pig and Whistle on West 36th Street in New York City, and Irish Rugby Tours. everybody, and welcome back to Rugby Wrap-Up. Matt McCarthy at the Fantasy Sports Network Studio 34 in New York City, not in Dublin, because the last time we had a show, it was in Dublin with the man that's calling in on our monitor, Mr. George Hook. George, welcome. And McCarthy, Hook here, speaking from the Fantasy Sports Network in Hook's kitchen, using his laptop and his telephone in the new miracle of technology. Sir, you are a marvel of technology. I must uh, tip my cap to you. The fact that you, we had a little, we had a little bit of a rough going, ladies and gentlemen, behind the scenes. But uh, Mr. Hook was pers- persevered, and here we are. So, George, uh, now that I'm, now that I'm back on this side of the pond after uh, a bit of a journey and uh, one that you made very special, uh, we have some rugby to talk about. Absolutely, and it's costing me a dollar a minute. So please feel free, young McCarthy, to talk as much as you like. All right, you can put it. Uh, you can account. You can put it on account. Account that we don't have it. Uh, all right. So let's start with the possibility for the first time in history, and we talked a little bit about this off camera, that the Northern Hemisphere might be better than the Southern Hemisphere in rugby. Well, I, you know, partially because of my age but partially because um, I'm a historian at heart, not just of rugby, but of all history. South Africa were the best team in the world, really, until the middle 1950s. At that point, um, New Zealand started to edge and fun. But the two great nations, world rugby, unbeatable, home or abroad, by home nations, were New Zealand and South Africa. Um, the individual countries couldn't beat them, and the Lions couldn't beat them. Then Australia, particularly uh, round about 1984-85, they had a wonderful schools team in the early 80s. That team then transformed into the Australian national team with the Ella brothers and so on. And suddenly we had three major Southern Hemisphere nations. Meanwhile, the Northern Hemisphere had the best competition. In other words, the Five Nations Championship, now the Six Nations Championship. They envied us greatly, our wonderful championship, but they were better than us. For the first time ever, we are seeing the Northern Hemisphere do more than just challenge, challenge and beat. So the real question is, it's taken 150 years for it to happen. Why did it happen? That's a very good question. I would say professional rugby. You've got weather in the Northern Hemisphere that might not allow for the style of the uh, Southern Hemisphere game, but you have a lot of Southern Hemisphere players now infiltrating the Northern Hemisphere teams. And so there isn't that distinct cutoff like we have in the NFL here with uh, the NFC East where it was smash mouth football with the Washington Redskins and the New York Giants and you had Bill Walsh's West Coast offense there's not that distinct difference anymore not to me anyway no Uh, as brother Athanasius the presentation brother to whom I owe everything he said to me hooky he said when I was about 10 years of age he said hooky money is the root of all evil. 
And that is what has happened in rugby. The money is in the Northern Hemisphere, not in the Southern Hemisphere. So point one, for the first time ever, New Zealanders, and particularly the Pacific Islanders, for whom New Zealand has invariably been a place of employment, the Pacific Islanders are leaving, and New Zealand, Caucasian New Zealanders, are coming to Europe, turning their backs on the All Blacks jersey for the money that is available to them, principally, principally, but not totally, in England and France. South Africa's got two problems. One, money. There are probably two Springbok sides in Europe at the moment, uh, and the third best team might well be the, the Springboks who are selected from the home base class. So money, in South Africa's case, it is then doubled by the fact that South Africa cannot pick the best team. The Springboks are no longer picked, and I understand why. It's a different argument, but I understand why. There's positive discrimination. So by the time the World Cup in Japan comes around, Razzie Erasmus is going to have to pick the majority of his team from black South Africans. That doesn't necessarily mean it's his best team. I don't know whether they're better or worse, but you can't say that a sports team can be selected on the basis of positive discrimination. You can only pick a sports team on the basis of uh, the best. And then thirdly, Australia, well, they're just a shambles. I mean, the Australian Rugby Union doesn't know up from down. Um, they've, they, they are now so far behind rugby league, soccer, and the great Australian rules. So fourth place, only kept alive by a number of small fee-paying schools. So they're, I mean, I don't think Australia are ever going to come back. I think there's only one direction for Australia, and that's down. But when you look at what's happening up here, I tell you, in the Northern Hemisphere, you're seeing, you're seeing for the first time ever, Ireland have beaten the All Blacks twice. We hadn't even beaten them. The best we had ever achieved in 150 years was a draw for crying out loud. Go, I'm going to work backwards here. You mentioned Australia and their dysfunction. They had a, a, a little bit of a kerfuffle in the, in the papers with Jack White actually calling in to inquire about Michael Cheka's job, which is always fun when you're a head coach of a, of a team and you get you get that you get wind of that. But they said we're not answering the call or or something absurd along those lines. You know they're talking to him about stuff. Uh, but then getting back to your rather con- controversial statements about uh, South Africa, I think it's too big of a of a an event in South African rugby for them to be trying not to have the best guys on the pitch. I think. Rassi is going to try to do what he can, but there's no way in hell he's not going to put the best best team on the pitch. That's just my thought. That's just my two cents. No, but you're right. Listen, I, I would never quarrel with you, but you are 360 degrees wrong. What Erasmus is facing is a dictat that a certain percentage of his players must be black. So he can't put the best team in the field. I mean, if, he, if, the, if the 60% of the black players are the best players in their position, then I'm fine with it. The most obvious example of the problem for South Africa is at number 10, where Janchis, um, who in effect is the number two, number 10, uh, is 
clearly not up to test match standard, but he's there because of positive discrimination. And when South Africa play with Genjins at number 10, they are a much worse team than they are with, with alternatives there. And, and so that's Erasmus's problem. We got to move along, and we, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about Wales going undefeated in the autumn tests because we've been called to task on that. And somebody came to our defense and said, well, they were shooting a show in Dublin, and it was Ireland versus the USA, and Joe Schmidt was leaving. So there was some big topics to discuss. But Wales did go undefeated, and they did beat South Africa and Australia. But all that does is prove the discussion we've had for the last 10 minutes. You know, it is not Wales, it's, it's Ireland beating New Zealand. So that it's just simply that Northern Hemisphere nations are beating their Southern Hemisphere opponents. I, I doubt if there's been a period in rugby where touring sides coming north have gone essentially home with their tail between their legs. I, don't, I can't remember that. I can't remember. Like, you've got to go back to the 1950s to find Australian teams that, that were doing as badly as, as this uh, team is doing. Yeah, well, it's it's definitely a problem in, in Australia. But uh, before we leave the international test uh, topic, we did get grief on the Internet about Tier 2 teams against the Tier 1 teams and the best players. And then it was cited, the, the example of Italy was cited because they've been playing against the best teams and have gotten con- arguably worse. Arguably, they have got better. The problem is they haven't got a lot better, but they have got better. And the problem for them is, in terms of the world ranking, that Fiji has got better, and your beloved Eagles have got better. So therefore, they dropped in the world rankings because other teams uh, are playing better. Now, if you look at Italy in terms of the future, and you look at their under-20 side, their under-20 side in the under-26 nations of, of last season they were ahead of Ireland. So the next crop of Italians coming through look pretty good. And, and with my good friend, Conor O'Shea, uh, the former Irish fullback in charge, we are also seeing a strengthening of the club game. Uh, Zebra and uh, Treviso, while not shooting the lights out, are still doing better than they've done in previous years. So it, it's not magic stuff, but it's good stuff. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about dollars in the premiership, Owen Farrell, and uh, a couple of other quick little things before we let you go, George. So hold tight, and we'll be right back with Mr. George Hook calling in from Dublin. If you're in New York City and want to watch some great rugby, have some great food, and some great times, go to the world's best rugby pub, The Pig and Whistle, on West 36th Street. If you're just joining us, this is a big match and a big moment, as Kleister's toes the line. You know, John, Anderson has really been struggling out there today. mistake as Kleister's clinches another title. Don't let your nutrition get in the way. USANA, the official multivitamin of the WTA. 
Everybody, welcome back to Rugby Wrap-Up. Matt McCarthy with Mr. George Hook calling in from Dublin. Uh, George, we left off talking about uh, international test rugby, but now we're going to move on to where some money is being thrown. And there's been some money being thrown at the Premiership through this private equity firm, CVC. Uh, they were they had thrown out an offer for 51% to take a to take a 51% majority share stake in the Premiership. The owners uh, put that down. Counter offer was made for about 200 million pounds, and it looks like they're going to take over the commercial arm now. What are you What are your thoughts on this with this influx of cash? Well, it did go professional, you know. Um, it's it's a bit like Winston Churchill was at dinner, I think, with Lady Astor, and she he said to her, "Would you sleep with me for a pound?" And she said, "Certainly not." And he said, "Would you sleep with me for a thousand pounds?" And she said, "I think about it." So he said, "We know what you are. We're merely arguing about the price." So what we're doing now with rugby is we're merely arguing about the price of rugby's virginity. That's what we're arguing about. And we're going to see a professional organization invest in rugby. Now, what's it going to do? Do you think they care about the health of the players? Do you think they care about the quality of the game? Do you think they care about the development of 14-year-old kids playing in the park? No. They are interested in turning a buck. So when they ring up Saracens and they say to Saracens, kickoff on Saturday is at 3 o'clock, Saracens will say, would that be a.m. or p.m.? So what you're going to find is they're going to call the shots and they're going to tell the clubs what to do. They're going to tell the clubs how they want them to play. They're going to eventually they'll probably tell them who to pick. They like Mickey Murphy because of his haircut, and the girls like him, or whatever reason, or he uses a particular form of aftershave, and because it's commercial, they will pick that. So you're going to see the destruction of the game. Well, here's one thing that, that, that catches my eye. It's an, an immediate inf, uh, infusion of about 20 million pounds to each team, and the only one that's in a profit right now is, is Exeter, which is curious. Uh, but I'm thinking that if they had their house in order, maybe the brand could be worth more if they kept the money. And Johnny Lewis, our mad Welshman that uh, works with us, says, why is this necessarily a negative? And if the MLR had attracted this type of money, we'd think that was great. It's not the same thing. This is apples and oranges. And if they're going to do this in the short term, what are they going to do in the long term? Well, I mean, what you all you have to do is look at football, soccer. Um, where if you're in the first in the premiership, the television rights are producing enormous amounts of money. As soon as you drop out of the premiership, you lose a ton of money. What what we're going to see undoubtedly now is we're going to see teams survive if they have money and not survive if they don't. Money is going to determine whether you're successful or not. And the day the game became professional, it, that's what it did. And we didn't see it because we didn't think about it. But that's it. Money will now determine rugby. Just same as it determines the NFL. Just the same as it determines all professional sports. Ultimately, it, is, it diminishes the sport. It's not sport anymore. It's just a role. 
Roman Colosseum and Nero and the crowd cheering as more blood is spilt. And that's what we're going to see. And I mean, that's me. I, I may be a minority, but I care about this game. I care about this game. Um, well, she's not in the kitchen at the moment. I probably care about this more than my wife. You're going to be in the Roman Coliseum if you keep talking like that with your wife. But final thoughts on this topic. Um, you know, the fear is they're going to start spending like drunken sailors. And, and everybody is saying, well, they're not going to put it into player salaries. They're going to put it into infrastructure and paying down debt. But all, all of us, you know, already you're reading about the bidding war between like a racing Metro and teams in the, in the premiership for Kieran Reed at a million pounds a year. And it wouldn't be until after the world cup in 2019, they're already spending the money conceivably. Well, it, I mean, the big problem, if I was, if I was the coach, if I was rising Erasmus or Steve Hansen, I'd be saying to myself, how many more players are they going to lose? You even can't compete with a million-dollar deal. They just can't compete. Neither can South Africa, neither can Australia. So the net effect is that as soon as we get that, you control your hazard. That's what's going to happen. Make no mistake. All right, final topic before we break, and I appreciate your patience with us today. Your man, Owen Farrell. There was a video out uh, about thugs, and I just wanted to get, I know that you're going to have something to say about that, so let's see what you have to say about that. Well, the piece on YouTube uses the word thug. Um, I don't know whether he is or isn't, but since the day I first saw him uh, as an international rugby player, he was looking for trouble. He's always gone looking for trouble. Um, so we see him in off-the-ball incidents, or we see him pumping people or whatever. Now, here's the rope. He could get a red card, it seems to me, in almost every match he plays for the way he tackles. He doesn't rap. He is purely with his shoulder. And the video on YouTube shows that clearly. How he got away with that in the November internationals is actually quite beyond me. I just cannot believe how he got away with the tackles against South Africa and against Australia. Either... If you take the best case scenario, either he's just a very bad tackler, uh, and, or he deliberately sets out to hurt people. I think it's the second. I think he, he's got away with it now so often that, you know, there was a great movie once upon a time with Mickey Rooney, who was an incorrigible juvenile delinquent. I think that Owen Farrell is Mickey Rooney with Father Flanagan, that he's encouraged, but he thinks he can now get away with it, and he simply tackles illegally at every opportunity. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Owen Farrell is Mickey Rooney. Uh, only George Hook, but I'm going to say this. I'm going to say it's on the officials. They're not calling the, the, the they're not calling the penalties against the guy, and you play the ref. And quite frankly, Owen Farrell is a guy that if he's on your team, you'll love him because he's a winner. He's got grit. He's not afraid to mix it up. But at the same time, if he's not on your team, you can't stand him. And there's there's a lot of that going on out there. But again, he's getting away with it because they're not pulling out the card. And that's on the officials. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I can't wait to see what happens when Andy Farrell takes over Ireland and Owen Farrell doesn't rap when he tries to decapitate Connor Murray or somebody else. So we'll see how that works out. But in the meantime, my friend, we are out of time and I, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much, sir. 
It's an honor and a privilege, Matt, to be on your program. Right back at you, Coach. Mr. George Hook calling in from Dublin. He's got a bit of a kitchen battle ahead of him if his wife heard our comments earlier, but I think he'll survive. And on that note, I'm Matt McCarthy at the Fantasy Sports Network Studio 34 in New York City, signing off. <laughs>